In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at aspirient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cammie and Sandy. Hi, this is Sandy. Today on Money Tales, we're joined by Ned Montenacourt. At the age of 30, Ned and his siblings went through a life-altering event. Their dad died suddenly. In the wake of that disaster, they learned that the vacation cottage that their family owned for more than 100 years might have to be sold to cover the resulting estate tax. Worse than that, their sister was disinherited. Decades later, they have yet to fully recover their relationship with her. Hi, this is Cammie. Ned has over 20 years of experience designing and implementing risk control programs for financial services companies. He started his career in Moscow, Russia, where he made a lot and lost a lot of money in a short period of time. No wonder Ned found himself in a risk mitigation focused career. Today, as a consultant to Legacy Foundry, Ned is passionate about harnessing his family money experience to help other families avoid what his went through. He's also a committed negotiator on the price of everything. Please stick around after the interview for our takeaways from the discussion. Now, on to our conversation with Ned Montenacourt. Ned Montenacourt, welcome to Money Tales. We are so glad you're here with us. Thank you guys so much for having me. Would you please give us an overview of your life, focusing on two to three pivotal moments that really make you the person that you are talking with us today? Yeah, sure. I was raised on a farm in Western New Jersey, grew up with a pretty strong work ethic, raised animals, grew up on goat's milk, never tasted cow's milk until I was about 14. But at that age, I lost my mom. That was a very pivotal moment for me for a lot of different reasons. But I think at that point, it's when I started to realize that we weren't really talking about money at all in the family. And that's what I started to realize I'm going to have to at some point start making my own money. It wasn't something that was discussed in my household, but I'm very happy around the process and the the way I grew up. But the other couple pivotal moments was I went off to college and then after college, I wound up living abroad because I'd lived abroad in high school. And that really opened up my eyes to the rest of the world, the opportunities that existed in the rest of the world. It really sparked my desire to want to learn more, earn more, and really grab the experiences that life has to offer and grab them as quickly as possible and really just learn from them all. That was those pivotal moments, but uh, I lost my father when I was 30. So that was yet a more pivotal moment. So that was when I really, the reality set in around, uh, okay, uh, I got the rest of this life to deal with myself. So that was very, very pivotal. Thank you for that overview, Ned. Let's go back to your younger years. So you're growing up on a farm and you said your parents weren't really talking to you about money. Do you recall when you first became aware of money being a thing in the world? Yeah, I do. So my father was a big, uh, you know, he was 
come home and he would throw all his change in the jars. And one of the big things that we did is we would roll up all the pennies and the quarters and the dimes. And that was like the cool thing to do. And that's when I started to look at, wow, you know, actually change can add up. Uh, (laughs) Every once in a while I would go and I would lift a couple of those $10 rolls from my dad and be like, I'm going to the candy store. But yeah, I mean, at a younger age, that was something that was really impactful for me because living on the farm wasn't like you could just go next door and go to the candy store. You had to ride, you know, basically 10 miles to the candy store, but you don't want to get to the candy store and realize you didn't have any money with you. So (laughs) that was definitely something that was at the younger age without my family talking about it. I felt guilty about asking for it. So I just kind of found it, if you will. I would be like, okay, my dad's not going to miss one more $10 roll of quarters. So I'm going to take that. And You just take it without asking? Yeah, I would, because I don't know, it was one of those things that wasn't talked about. And I think that what I've tried to do with my kids is talk about money. You break the chain around making sure that they understand the importance of it. In this day and age, it's really easy for kids to get desensitized to money because there's no physical exchange of money anymore. It's all swipe and Apple Pay. And, you know, so they are really desensitized to A, how much stuff costs and B, Should I be getting change back or did they overcharge me? That's cascaded into other things, teaching them about the miracle of compounding and all that good stuff. Ned, tell us more about this pivotal moment when you went off to study abroad in high school. So it was right after I lost my mom. I was 14. I had this fantastic opportunity to go abroad to France. It was given to me because I was in private school, thanks to my grandmother, who was willing to pay for it and realized that I needed to get off the farm. And otherwise, I probably wouldn't have an interesting life. That was amazing. That was the first time that I had the experience around, oh, there are different monies out there. There's, you know, the French franc and the German Bund and the Deutschmark. And I learned about exchange rates and I learned, you know, okay, wow, the dollar is pretty strong and everyone likes to correlate. So that's when I started to learn about global currencies, monies generally. And it was really kind of eye-opening for me. Interesting. I want to go back to your grandmother who thought it was important for you to get off the farm. So she paid for your private school. Would you share with us a little bit more about that? I think the situation there is she did it in conjunction with my father and she had, uh, she had lost her husband. She had a retirement, you know, she wasn't a big spender. So she felt like it would be better spent on the kids on the grandkids and a private education, especially for someone who's out in kind of the boondocks seemed like the right decision. And in hindsight, it opened up my eyes. It opened up many doors. It opened up my ability to think a little bit differently and see things differently. So what a gift. Yeah, such a gift. Not everyone has that opportunity. And that's something that's, I think, uh, we need to make more available to people generally, you know, to democratize specifically that private education. I don't think I would have gone very far had I not been exposed to that. When your mom died, did that bring up so many concerns? Because that's a very traumatic thing to have happen as a young person. And I fortunately have both of my parents, but I remember being a child and thinking, gosh, what would happen if mom died or dad died or if they both died? And I remember money being part of my concerns. Did anything come up for you around money when your mom died? Yeah. I mean, my mother, she was a, a working mom. She was a professor at a university. And my father was a salesman for Xerox. Both parents worked. And 
when my mom was sick, my father stopped working to take care of her and uh, we all took care of her. So yeah, money was a big issue. Money was a big issue because obviously the cost of taking care of someone with cancer is high. Someone choosing not to work because they have to take care of their spouse and then they've got three kids. I look back on it, I'm in awe of what my mom had to go through, but also what my dad had to endure. No one really thinks about the caretaker. When you're going through something like that, the caretaker is uh, more often than not probably stressed 10 times what the patient is. So that was definitely something that came up for me. That sparked me to go work and make money wherever I could, whether it's cutting lawns or washing dishes, uh, doing construction job. That was really the reason and impetus for me. So I wouldn't have to ask him for gas money and I wouldn't have to ask him for some of these other things that cost money and that I wanted to do. And so then you went on to France and you learned about the world, the world of money. Yeah, I went on to France. I mean, it was just a an eye-opener. You see that the world is not confined to the tri-state area and English and dollars. It's the experiences that are out there are for our taking. In order to do that, you need to make money. It doesn't have to be lots of money, but I think you can do things frugally. My kids always joke that I'm a frugal dad and they're almost kind of embarrassed because I always ask, hey, is there this guy you can give me? I don't like to pay retail. And I said to my kids, I say, what's the worst that can happen? They say, no. And I do it in France and I, and I do it in different languages and, and I'll do it for the rest of my life because everything's negotiable. Okay. Where did you learn that? It's so important. People feel that maybe you shouldn't do this. I love asking, do you take AAA? <laughs> you can get a discount with AAA. Where did you learn this, Ned? It boggles my mind why people don't. I learned it just because, you know, I had to. I knew and I realized at a young age that, look, the price of a car is negotiable. The price of a house is negotiable in most cases. Uh, right now, they're not so negotiable. But And I thought about the, the lifetime savings that could add up by not paying retail is massive, right? That goes to you know college education and it goes through to negotiating a raise for yourself and what's the worst that can happen by you asking? Them say no? Okay, well, set your ego aside, right? And, that, and I think I learned that to set my ego aside and my kids and my daughter, to her credit, she now does it. It's one of those things that you just ask. And 90% of the time, I get it. I get the discount that I'm asking for. <laughs> That's fantastic. If it were like, 10% of the time, I'd be like, oh, okay, well. Maybe not worth it. Yeah. Ned, tell us, what have you negotiated in your life that you're most proud of? I have a, an old 1984 Land Cruiser. These things are worth a fair amount of money, especially ones that aren't rusted out. And I bought it for $9,000 and I found it because I was bundling basically tools and I saw it sitting in the barn and I wanted to get it. And so it was a kind of a bundled situation. But I think that's probably the thing that stands out in my mind because I look at it today and I wake up weekly with notes on my car asking, you know, people asking to buy it. <laughs> Did you do a bunch of research at the time to figure out what the fair value was or? No, I wanted one for a while. I'd known what cars were going for and this was pre-COVID. So I think it was, people were interested, but the older cars are having a, a renaissance and I think it's something my kids absolutely love. So I'm getting the value out of it today. That's a lot of fun. Ned, tell us about getting out of school and going abroad. Where were you and what were you up to? When I graduated from college, I wound up going, and I think the France experience was something that laid the groundwork for the next thing that I did, was I went to Moscow, Russia. 
in Moscow, Russia, I mean, just to give you some different flavor around money, I mean, I, I lived there for three and a half years, but the Russians didn't understand what it was that you could actually earn interest on your money. So literally, when you hear Russians, what do they do with their money? When they get paid, they exchange it into dollars, and then they literally, and this is no joke, they literally put it under their mattress because they have had so many situations where they've woken up the next day and the Russian government has devalued the currency or defaulted on its debt. So they don't trust their own currency. And that's something that's important for everyone to think about, especially for us with uh, our situation. I mean, obviously our government is printing dollars hand over fist. And my father used to always tell me the definition of inflation is too many dollars chasing too few goods. You know, and he had all these little sayings and what goes up must come down. So I believe that, again, I think you, for me, I like to just diversify how I think about money in terms of where I allocate it and how much debt I have and all of those things, because I think there's no perfect model and there's no one size fits all. Ned, would you tell us what drew you to Moscow, Russia? So what drew me to Moscow, Russia was my brother. My brother also benefited from private school education, thanks to the work that my father did and my grandmother contributed her generosity. So he studied Russian all through high school, all through college, and then went there almost as the wall was coming down. He went there in 89 and he stayed. And he's actually in the process of moving back to the US right now. He's been there for north of 30 years. So I went there to see that experience. I went there in 91. I went back in 92. And in that short period of time, I saw how much change had taken place. I wanted to be in a space where things were changing and opening up. It was really a new frontier. So it was a lot of fun to be there. Did you make some money? Yeah, I made a ton of money. And then I proceeded to lose all of that money. For those that don't remember, I was there in the mid-90s. There was the privatization of all the you know, Russian assets. And that's when the oligarchs were all created. And the Russian stock market was going berserk. So my brother and I invested and I lost my shirt. I'd made a lot of money while I was there, but I was trying to double down and I wound up losing everything. So that was a real experience for me to have that experience, to have made that money, and then to have lost that money. So I wound up coming back to the United States and really having to start from square one. I came back in September of 98 after all of the default and devaluation took place. So I came back to the US and really started anew in the Bay Area. And then I went from one crazy market to another crazy market. So it was crazy market in emerging markets, and then it was crazy market in the dot-com era. But you tell us more about what that felt like, because you're someone who learned early on that you wanted to have money and take care of yourself and to be in an exciting place on the other side of the world, and then to have lost it all. That can be a big ego blow. What did that feel like for you? Yeah, I mean, it was humbling. I think it was humbling. It was an experience for me. I think what I've since learned is there's so much to be learned from those types of experiences. I would never not want that experience. I feel like I learn 10 times more in a bad experience than I do in a good experience. And that's not to discount good experiences. I think it's just the way we all learn. So when I came back to the US, I moved in with my buddy who had rent control in Russian Hill and I was paying $400 a month. I was paying less rent in the US than I was in Russia. I love that you went from Russia to Russian Hill. 
Yeah, exactly. And that was quite a deal for anybody who knew what was going on at the dot-com. He couldn't get a parking space for that a month. Oh, yeah. And it was just crazy. And he had been in the same place for 10 years. So it was on Pacific and Jones. And I had parking. And it was just a... I look back on it and I kick myself forever giving that place up. That's when I think I really started to understand, look, I don't have to just accept what everyone says is market. And getting back to your earlier question around negotiating, those things are out there. I think you have to find them. Bigger ticket items, housing, education, and cars, those are worth really taking your time to negotiate because that will pay dividends over a long period of time. Nick, you mentioned earlier that when you were 30, your dad died which sounds like another really hard and traumatic thing to have happen. Will you tell us more about that and the role money played, if any, in that event? When I lost my dad, it was pretty sudden. We didn't see it coming. And what came in the wake of that was nothing short of just disaster, emotional relationship, financial disaster. So not long after he died, we found out that we owed the federal government a six-digit check because he didn't know what the estate tax was. We found out also that he had disinherited my sister. And that was a complete shock to my brother and I. And then we also learned that we knew we had this family cottage that had been the family for 100 years, but it had no succession plan. Very special place to everyone. And I mean, we were fortunate enough to not have to sell it because we had other assets that we could sell to pay for the estate tax. But this is something that It was really a passion for me today, but I want to help others learn how to avoid that mistake. I think financial advisors and the investment community has a big role to play in that respect. My father was just not willing to have the conversation. He was old school. And not having had that conversation, the cascade effect was just horrific. Relationships are still not repaired. The money thing, that's fine. Money my kids won't get, but, you know, and the federal government will get, but The piece that resonates with me most about that is it was avoidable. It was something that didn't need to happen. And I think about everyone that has parents with assets and how much the the state tax and the tax regime changes over time. It's not static. So they're going to tweak and tweak the dials as they see fit. And we have no control over it. Ultimately, the role and the responsibility is to make sure that you either are on top of it yourself or you work with people that are on top of it for you. So that's something that I think is really important because I just want, if I can help one family avoid the pain and suffering and relationship damage that I went through emotionally, relationship, financially, and we're still going through, you can't change those decisions and you can't do anything because those were decisions made by my father and my brother was the executor and I was the co-executor and you're sitting there in a role of having to interpret and deal with these decisions that are forced upon you. Oh man, what an emotionally traumatic time and financially traumatic time that you had to go through. What did you and your brother do? How did you handle it? Yeah, I mean, zero playbook available And we talked to our legal counsel and ultimately we executed the will the way he wanted it to be executed. But what we wound up doing is giving my sister money over time. She doesn't have to pay for the upkeep or any of the taxes or costs associated with the cottage, but we gave her money over time that equates to what she would have gotten from my father if he had 
split things equally. The decision was now ours to make because the money was ours. But that being said, it's never enough. It's never right. And that didn't happen immediately. That happened over time. So that relationship will never be normal. And that's the thing. Death is inevitable. People's mortality is something that people need to talk about and prepare for because I think the alternative is disastrous. Not talking about it is, in my mind, not part of the equation. So I talk about it with my kids. I let them know where things are. I have things pretty well dialed in. How you set your accounts up, transfer on death and all that other stuff is just, I think it's brain damage for most, but it's so important. Do it now before there's an event. Yeah, that's really good advice, Ned. I think for a lot of people, when it comes to estate planning, it forces them to think about end of life matters, which is right up there with talking about money. People don't like to go there, but your advice is sound. None of us live forever and it's better to have plans in place and to begin to communicate those plans with the people that may be impacted by them. Thank you for sharing with us what you've learned. I'm curious, as someone who's thought about this a lot, as someone who's had conversations with his own children about estate planning and sort of end of life matters, what's your advice for our listeners in terms of how to break into those conversations that can be sometimes scary, intimidating, uncomfortable? It's a great question. And I think the rising generation or Gen 2 doesn't want to have that conversation because they don't want to be looked at like the money grubbing, gold digging kids and the older matriarch and patriarch don't want to talk about it because it's morbid. But I think there are ways to go about doing that. I think there's a role that software can play in that process to getting families to that communication point where they understand. But I think it's incumbent upon both generations to be open to it, specifically the older generation, because if they want to cascade their values, the impact that they want their money to have, whether it's for their kids or their kids' kids or their grandkids, or for philanthropy reasons. There's such a wide array of examples to give. It's no one size fits all. They're all bespoke. And I think it's something that is really interesting to talk about because that wealth transfer can be impactful and can be helpful or it can be detrimental. And the decision and the execution of that decision around how that wealth gets cascaded is so critical and communicated, quite frankly. There's so many different ways and I see it all the time. I have these conversations and I share my story with people when I can, because if I can help one family avoid it, avoid the pain that we went through or just educate them in one little place, I think it's a better outcome for them. Hopefully it will be. Ned, you mentioned software which is an interesting idea, like software to bridge this emotional divide. And it's something that I know you're particularly passionate about. Would you say more about how a tool like software could help people start having and continue having these types of conversations? Yeah, sure. So I'm passionate about finding a solution. I work with a group. It's a passion project of mine. We believe strongly that software can play a role in getting families to that conversation, primarily because software is unbiased. It doesn't judge. You can ask questions and people are more open to answering those questions honestly. The objective of that answering or asking the set of questions is to come out with commonalities amongst generations, the same generation, different generations, so that when the family does get to sit down and have a conversation, you are starting from a point that is accretive for all. You're not starting from, uh, oh gosh, where do we start this conversation? It's, oh wow, we've actually done some pre-work to get 
to a point where we all know what we want to do with money and what do we think is the best solution here. And I think more times than not, Kimmy, to your question earlier, what's the nexus to get families to talk about the money? I think if you can break down some of the stigma and some of the taboo associated with how people feel about it. And the older generations have their own set of taboos around talking about money. And the software is there to really be a tool to help financial advisors, consultants, whoever it is, get families to that conversation. Because I am confident that once families get to that conversation, it will be this aha moment where they say, gosh, why didn't we do this sooner? And more importantly, I mean, Legacy Foundry, which is the company that I'm doing work for, we're passionate about solving for the medical, the financial, and the legacy. We believe strongly that the legacy is the piece that brings everyone together and really encourages people to say, hey, I want to share my story about grandma. And because the medical and the financial stuff is kind of dry, it's not something that everyone loves to talk about. But if you're named executor tomorrow and you know nothing about becoming an executor, how are you being educated around that? What does probate mean? All of these things, with there's a whole host of education that needs to happen for people that are going to be placed in those roles where they're going to have to execute someone's will, trust, whatever the case is. Sandy and Cammy, you know, there's zero education for family members that, okay, I've been tagged with that. What does that mean? How do I deal with that? Can someone help me? There's a complete vacuum in terms of the help that families have. And then they have to go out and engage people to do this. And it becomes very, very costly. And the strange thing and the thing that Sean Kennedy, Sean Kennedy's the CEO and founder, he has his own story. He had to deal with a cancer diagnosis in his late 20s, changed his life, set him on this path to build Legacy Foundry. But that's at the point where you really find out who you're who your tribe is and who your family is when you have to ask these really tough questions. The real intent for us is to just help families get to that conversation. Uh, we're confident that when that happens, good things will happen. They will put those documents in place, the medical documents, the financial documents. And in the process, they will all contribute something to the legacy of the family. We believe that this is a big problem. We love big problems, but we think it's solvable. Now, you're someone who you've already shared has a lot of conversations with your own family about money and about end of life planning. Why don't you tell us about one of the most satisfying conversations you've had with your children? What I'll tell you and I'll share with you is it's opening the 529s for my kids. And if there's one example that I can give to them around the power of compounding and saving for college. So the specific conversation I'm thinking about, Sandy, is a conversation that I recently had with my daughter about her taking control of her 529 and being responsible for her 529 and really understanding, okay, what's a qualified expense and what's not a qualified expense. But more importantly, understanding that that got to that value because I made that decision 18 years ago to start contributing. We only contributed X amount, but that X amount became Y. And she was like, dad, that's just amazing. And I can try and work through and show her on a whiteboard the math around compounding. But the most powerful tool I've found is really just handing that off. And it's a learning experience for her to be able to understand, especially as she goes out and has kids. But more importantly, just saving. I always tell them, save 50% of what you make. Do they do it? I don't know. But you know, I think that that's important. And I think 
our generation, we live in a society that wants to consume. And it's almost like a constant battle to fight the consumption. Now, there has to be a happy medium. Like It's not a race or it's not a contest about how much money you can be put in a coffin with. So spend some of it while you have it. But if you have a legacy that you want to cascade to family members or charities you want to donate to, that's the impact. That's the impact that you can have with your money, the positive impact. And that's what I love. I see so much of it around me. I do from time to time see negative impact where kids inherit money and they have no appreciation for work and they go out and buy things and then toss them out. I would say on balance, it's very positive experience that I've seen with people because it's understanding the importance and the value of money and and how that can impact people's lives. I appreciate you bringing to life the idea of learning by doing, because it's really hard to learn when it's just concepts. But when it impacts you and you see the money grow or not, I think your Russian experience was a big learner. What would you say, Ned, is having a good relationship with money? How would you describe that? I would describe it by not letting it drive you every decision you make, looking at your account every day, that's not healthy. I think being able to strike a balance between saving and spending is great because I know I tell my kids, I don't give you gifts. I give you experiences. So I'd rather give them an experience because a gift is you open it, they enjoy it for whatever, and it finds, it gathers dust after a certain period of time. I think giving experiences is, is so much more valuable because A, it's something that I can do with them. And it's something that the memory can't take away until early onset kicks in. <laughs> but there's a lot to be said there. And I think that's where I choose to spend my money on gifts, experiences. Ned, what's your next money conversation going to be? And who's it going to be with? The next money conversation I'm probably going to have is going to be with my son. My son is now a driver. He bought his own car, technically did not buy his own car. He's still paying me off, but he works. So he pays me $300 a month to pay down the loan. He did pay for a third of it. His mom paid for a third of it. And then I financed the other third because I could have given him the money to pay for it, but I'd rather finance it for him. So he starts to understand, again, the experience of having money in your pocket and handing it over and understanding that debt is not free. Debt is something that needs to be paid off. I think there's a role that debt plays for sure. I think debt can be a good thing, but in proper measurement in relation to your net worth. And I think that's a critical component that I try and teach it. So that conversation with Simon will be Now that you paid off your car, you're going to college next year. And then that next conversation will be, here's your 529. And helping him understand that process and the importance of saving. And this is what you can do when when that happens. That has been one of the most fantastic tools for me in educating my kids. Especially there's a concept of teaching them when they're younger. But when they are going into adulthood, that's when I think you can really have big impact. I don't want to have negative impact on them as young kids and traumatize them because I asked for discounts on everything. But, <laughs> I mean, that'll be my next conversation. It sounds like a good one. I am curious though. Did you teach Simon how to negotiate for his own car or had he already learned from watching the master do it for so many years? No, I mean, he was involved in the process, but I was the negotiator. We had a bad experience with my daughter because she wanted a specific car and that car was problematic and we wound up having to sell it, but I didn't want to make the same mistake twice. We found a car that has a good history, doesn't have mechanical issues. He was involved in the process, but did not negotiate. But I'm hoping that they will. I mean, they'll learn and they just don't want to pay a markup because 
that's what the price says on a tag. Now, those sound like fantastic conversations to be having with your son. This is a very insightful conversation. You certainly have had a wide range of experiences, and we appreciate you sharing them with us and our listeners. Well, thank you so much for having me, and I love to share the story. If my story can help one other person in any way become a better user of money or saver or whatever the case is, then it's helpful. And I love what you guys are doing. I think it's important and don't ever stop. We're not going to. Thanks, Ned. See you guys. Sandy, what was your biggest money insight from this conversation with Ned Montanacourt? Cammy, of course, the situation he described about when his dad died was devastating for him and for his siblings. And I thought there was great learning there for our listeners. People die. Life does not go on forever. Hopefully, the people in our lives, including ourselves, will live very long lives. But statistics are that's not going to happen for everybody. It's not only important to have estate plans in place to help out when untimely events occur, but it's really important, as Ned mentioned, to talk about the plans with the ones you love and help prepare them so that there aren't big surprises, not only with a surprise estate tax, which can force families to have to make some really tough decisions about what assets to sell, but certainly with the situation related to his sister and his sister being disinherited and how devastating that was for him and his brother to have to work through that with her. That's just a really big surprise to have unwind on you when you're otherwise grieving for the loss of a parent. These conversations, they wouldn't have been easy for whatever the dad's reason was with their sister, but to not surprise them through conversations would have been really beneficial. I'm sure his dad expected to live a lot longer. It was a sudden death situation, but I think that is a big point of this learning, which is just to always not only be prepared, but prepare those around you who will be impacted by whatever plans you put in place. It got me thinking about my own personal life and who should I be talking to about our plans? Because you're right, no one wants to talk about this But it is important, and I hope it's conversations that are unnecessary because I live to a long, long, (laughs) ripe age. The interesting thing about these end-of-life conversations is that if you're able to have them when everyone's healthy and young enough, you can continue to have them throughout life. And so you're having these conversations every few years and they become much more normalized. And you get into a routine with those that are most important to you. And with anything, practice allows you to remove some of the awkwardness that's otherwise involved when you're having these conversations for the first time. And I really admire Ned for sharing his story with us. I think this was really enlightening. And I feel sad that he and his siblings needed to go through this, especially after losing their mom at such young ages. But what a gift he gave us by sharing his story with us. And he's really passionate about helping anybody he can, which I really appreciate. Sandy, another thing that I enjoyed him talking about was his desire to negotiate for the best deal and how he is not embarrassed by this. It sounds like his experience in Moscow taught him a lot about why not negotiate? Why not ask? Is there a better deal? I mentioned when we talked to Ned, I I have AAA. Why don't you ask? Do you take AAA? And I just did this on a road trip. 
and I saved $20. It's as, as Ned talked about, a penny here, a penny there, a dollar here, a dollar there. This adds up. This compounding is powerful. All you have to get over is your own personal feeling of awkwardness of just asking, is there a better deal? And you're not discounting anything. You're not putting anybody down. You're just asking, is this the best deal? And I, I don't know. My takeaway is I'm going to try that more often. I think these are great skills for folks to have, and they can be beneficial in our lives, not only negotiating for the little stuff, but negotiating compensation, home purchases, home sales. You're right, Sandy. I think a lot of times when we think about financial skills, we think of them in this big, I've got to understand, I've got to do these big things to be financially mindful. We've used the exercise analogy. It's the small muscles that you need to exercise. And it becomes this wave of experience and growth that happens. And you get used to doing this, then it just becomes more fluid when you're having other conversations. I also want to highlight how Ned is using the 529 plans that he set up for his children's college education funding to provide the kids with some learning opportunities as they go off to college. I remember studying mortgages in school. And you study and you get the idea, but the minute you got to buy a house and you're taking on a mortgage, then you really understand it. So I imagined his daughter, when he handed this management of 529 over to her, I just could see the light bulbs going off, even though I don't know her. I just can imagine that it makes it real. It turns this concept into reality. And what a great gift of knowledge. For listeners who might not be familiar with 529 plans, they are a special sort of savings plan set up for education. And you can contribute money to a 529 plan that's set up for anybody. It could be a child, a friend. And the money that you put in the plan and invest grows on a tax-free basis. If that money is later used by the beneficiary to cover their college expenses or up to $10,000 per year of private K-12 through education expenses, then the earnings on the 529 plan investments are never taxed. So it's a really cool way for parents, grandparents, other family members and friends to help save money to fund future education for people who are really important to them. Thanks for the financial insight, Sandy. That's really helpful. Of course. And thank you, Ned, for being such a great guest. It was a pleasure to speak with you on Money Tales and hear your stories. And for our listeners, we always welcome you sharing your money stories with us. You can reach us at podcasts at Asperient.com. And please tell us how things are going in your money conversations, your money tales. You've been listening to Money Tales, hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder. To subscribe to the show on your favorite platform or to increase your money mojo via their blog, Fathom, head on over to Asperient.com slash podcasts. Thanks. And we'll see you next time on Money Tales. Money Tales.